The word from the Lord today is from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Every time I hear all your voices singing and then get to come up here and turn around and see all of you eager to hear from God, it just fills my heart with just such joy. Sunday mornings are a huge blessing to me, and I pray they are for all of you as well. Before we dive into this beautiful text from the Gospel of John, let's pray and ask God one more time to open his word to us. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, please bring our hearts to life. Remove further the veil from our eyes. Unplug our ears, soften our hearts, and plant this word down deep in us. That we would be able to see the world as you see it. That we would be able to hear your voice and follow. That we would be able to love one another as Christ has loved us. Work in us through this word this morning, that the glory of Christ might shine in us. Amen. One of the most concerning things to wake up to in the middle of the night is the sound of your child screaming in terror. If they're having a terrible nightmare... They're having a, a night terror. If you ever heard one of those, it's this terrible dream that they are stuck in and can't wake up from. And they cry out for help, but they're still in the dream. They can't get out of it. Their minds caught up in this scary dream world and their bodies thrashing around, their voices crying out in the real world for someone to help. I've been awakened in the night by such terrors. And I go rushing down the hall to my kid's room and jump in to see that they're okay, they're just having a nightmare. I'm glad they're not in real danger, but I still have compassion. I still want to help rescue them from the fear that they're gripped in. When kids are caught up in these night terrors, you wanna be very careful to awake them gently. You don't want to add more fear to what they're already experiencing. But inevitably, you lay your hand on them and you, you gently say their name to start rousing them out of their sleep. And as they're coming out of it, they can't really tell what's real and what's imagined. And they, they see you as a, another threat to them, further terror. So you persistently reassure them, it's dad, it's mom, you're okay. And eventually they calm down and they melt into your arms safe from the troubles that haunted them just moments before. 
when you're in one of those night terrors, it all feels so real. You have no idea what's real, what's a dream, and it feels impossible to escape. Sometimes it just feels like it's playing on loop. You're almost out, and then you're right back in it again. And the only rescue for you can come from the outside of that world. You need someone who's unaffected by the terror, but still compassionate to be able to bring you out of it. In our text today, Jesus is revealing himself as the only one outside the terrors of this world and the only one able to bring us out of it. Jesus treads above the darkness of this world. This story reminds us that this world we live in is a dark shadow land where it's difficult to tell what's real, what's not. And in this dream world, we we panic, we fight all the wrong battles, we pursue all kinds of dead-end solutions to our problems. And then Jesus comes in to rouse us from our slumber with strength and compassion that we can escape the terror and find true, lasting rest in his presence. This story from John follows the healing of, or the feeding of the 5,000, and it's also repeated in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, where they bring it after the feeding of the 5,000 as well. But interestingly, John tells the story a little bit different. He actually leaves out a lot of the details that the other two put in there. Matthew and Mark are really trying to help you understand what it is they want you to grasp, what they are teaching you. Where John just tells the basic story with well-placed key words and phrases that are meant to just draw you in and overwhelm you with the weight of this truth, that Jesus treads above the darkness of this world. So I want to unfold this story in two parts this morning. First, looking at verses 16 and 19, exploring the terror in the shadows John very quickly moves us through the setting and the conflict and a surprising climax as the disciples are feeling around in the dark trying to find their way up. And then he leads us to a satisfying resolution in verses 20 to 21 where we find peace in the light as Jesus enters into their terror and pulls them to safety in his reality. So it's a short, powerful depiction of Jesus' own nature that John tells us in order to draw us into the peace of Christ. So let's take a look again at the terror in the shadows and read along in verses 16 through 19. John writes, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. They were frightened of Jesus approaching them. Now, Before we dive into this intense moment... Let's just remember some of the context to understand why John tells us this story right after the feeding of the 5,000. In chapter 5, Jesus had made a pretty bold statement about who he is. He had been hinting along 
the journey along his ministry, uh, who he was. But then when he healed this lame man at the pool on the Sabbath, he was proclaiming that he has divine nature. He is God. In the rest of chapter five, he's being more explicit. In, in case you misunderstood what I was talking about, here's what I'm saying. Jesus is claiming divine nature. They all knew it and made them furious. Now in John chapter six, John has shifted the scene from Jerusalem up to the northern countryside in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, but he's continuing to still develop the same idea about Jesus' nature. He's giving us more detail about what it means that Jesus is God. But instead of a long dialogue, as we saw at the end of chapter 5, now he's just showing us his divine power. It's like saying, you seem a little confused about all of the, what I was just talking about. Let, let me just show you what I mean. Sometimes words don't quite land right. You can see the blank stare in someone's face when you're talking. So you're like, okay, oh, let's, let's try this. And so in verses 1 to 14, Jesus relates to the people's need of food, their hunger. He's trying to awaken their imaginations, connect God's truth through multiple senses. He shows them by bringing them out to a desolate place and feeding them miraculously that he is the God who fed Israel manna in the wilderness. But they still didn't quite understand. Verse 15 shows us that they really just wanted to make him their earthly king, pull him along to be some kind of magic genie who would dispense blessings for them whenever they were in need. So John now tells the story of Jesus walking on the water in order to give the reader more clarity. Jesus isn't here just to solve your felt perceived problems, like needing some food. He is way above your problems. He can see over all of them. And he has come to show you that the problems you perceive aren't your real problems. You're caught up in a terrible nightmare. He's above it all and he's come to pull you out of it. Verses 16 and 17 set the scene for us. Jesus has just withdrawn to be alone in the mountainside to get away from the crowds that are misunderstanding him. And he sent the disciples to go home and rest. Their home is in Capernaum. It's, it's a little ways away. It's kind of around the, the edge of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And they could make their way home by walking around, but that might take a little longer, especially with all the crowds bothering them, asking where Jesus is. So they know it's almost sunset. It's going to be dark soon. We have got to get home. The quickest way, get in a boat straight across. We got this. They were quite familiar with this lake. They knew the fastest way home, but their return did not go as planned. See, the Sea of Galilee, it's not really a big sea when you imagine like standing at the edge of the ocean and just vast seas. It's a large lake. It's about six miles across. You can see the mountains and the cities on the other side to guide you as you're sailing or rowing. But the disciples' familiarity with it had lulled them into a little false sense of security. Just as we can be lulled in this dream world into a false sense of believing we are safe. Until something goes wrong and then we're crying out realizing we are out of control. In the Sea of Galilee, 
is, tends to be prone to this type of sudden storm out of nowhere. It lies 600 feet below sea level, below ocean sea level, with mountains rising up all around it. And the winds that are just blowing across the Mediterranean Sea and across the lands come and hit this little mountain range and dive down into the sea, stirring up the waters in huge waves suddenly out of nowhere. Winds are coming across with such incredible force, it made it nearly impossible for them to travel. What should have been a short trip home turned into a nightmare of a journey. But this isn't really their main problem, as John describes the rest of this scene. Remember that John is very careful to use word pictures to draw us in and connect us with the bigger picture of God's whole redemptive story. So what kind of details is he including here to draw us deeper in? First, we notice, obviously, that they're on a sea. Bodies of water are familiar to the stories of Scripture, and they always kind of represent this primordial beginnings. The sea was the place where life would come out of. So Genesis 1 shows us that the earth was covered in water, and then all the life came out of that water. Or Israel, born through the Red Sea, became a nation out of that water. Or you jump all the way to the end. Revelation tells us that there will be no more sea because there will be no more beginning. There's no new beginning anymore. It's not that there won't be water in the new creation, but the new creation will be eternal. Well, there's other aspects of the sea that can make the water imagery much more ominous. John says here in verse 17 that it was dark. It had become dark. Darkness in scripture suggests the absence of life. Light is what brings forth life. Darkness suggests impending death, trouble. In the New Testament, especially here in John and in his other writings, he uses the imagery of darkness to speak of spiritual darkness, being far from God, which John says here, Jesus had not been with them yet. They're far from God at this moment. They aren't simply in physical danger, but John's scene suggests to us great spiritual danger. And now the sea and this blanket of darkness have combined now into a raging storm, further pointing us to their peril. Storms symbolize the chaos of life sometimes, or difficult battles, terrifying circumstances we face, and very often judgment. Think of Noah's flood raging, the storm raging for 40 days and 40 nights, the ground breaking open and bursting forth the floodgates in order to judge and destroy an old creation or the storms that were in the plagues on Egypt. It was symbolic of God fighting a battle against all the false gods, the idols, declaring judgment over false worship. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by a storm of fiery hail for their wickedness, evidenced by rampant sexual perversion. And now John tells us one more important, to detail, important detail to remind us that all of this seeming chaos is not uncontrolled. It's not like God just stepped back and said, fine, I'll let nature do its thing. 
Verse 18 says, the strong wind was blowing. That's not simply a random occurrence of nature. The word for blowing has the same root in Greek as the word for spirit. The strong wind is coming from God's spirit upon them. If you look at all of these occurrences of dark, stormy seas in scripture, God's spirit is always there. In Genesis 1-2, God's spirit hovering over the face of the waters. The spirit of God was with Noah in the boat and then sent out to bring forth life as a dove. With this, the spirit of God stood with Israel at the edge of the Red Sea as a, a pillar of fire defending them, but also blowing a strong east wind across the sea in order to break it apart that they could walk through to safety. God is responsible for your storms. Jonah's storm, he recognized. He said, Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea. Even the prophet Nahum pronounced judgment upon the Assyrian empire, telling them, God is going to send a whirlwind and a storm to destroy you in judgment. He boasted in Nahum 1, chapter, or verse 3, that storm clouds are like dust beneath the feet of God. God walks on these storms of judgment. Similarly, Job was arguing with his friends and he was like, guys, I get it. I understand all my chaos. God is in control of. He said in Job 9 verse 8, God alone stretched out the heavens, controls the skies, and he tramples upon the waves of the sea. God is in control. He treads above the darkness of this world. And he uses nature to accomplish all of his purposes. So then, now in our story here, John tells us that they're battling against this storm. We realize it's a battle against God himself. They're battling in a night terror for a long time, thrashing about Against the threats, they row for about three or four hours, trying to find their way out of it, being carried in the wrong direction. And then they look up and they see Jesus walking on the water toward them. So what's John telling us here? With all of this powerful imagery of God working throughout history in storms, on seas, by bringing Jesus onto the scene in this way, he's showing us with certainty that Jesus is God. He's Noah's God and Job's God and Israel's God and Nahum's God and Jonah's God. Jesus is the creator God. Jesus is the judge of all the universe. He's unaffected by the darkness and the chaos of the world. In fact, he controls it. Then suddenly it all clicks for the disciples. Notice their response at the end of verse 19 when Jesus arrives, they were frightened. They weren't glad and excited, comforted by Jesus walking toward them on the sea. They knew that he's not just performing some cool magic trick to cheer them up. The point of the story is not him coming to rescue them from their peril, though that's part of it. That's not the main thing. The main point they now realize is that the God of the universe has hurled this storm upon them, and in their sin, they are in trouble. They thought they saw a ghost. They thought they saw the angel of death coming to take them to their judgment. They realize they're not 
helpless victims in this night terror, but agents of terror within it. We are sinners. The, the terrors are of our own making. God has offered us this beautiful reality in his creation, and in our sin, we reject it. We actually choose the shadow world. We think that we can find greater pleasures in it. We receive his gifts and everything from his hand and use them for our own purposes. We actually like the dream world because it allows us to pretend that we are kings and queens of our own existence. But it's God's world and we are corrupting it. So judgment is the proper response to sin. God had to come into this, come upon the storm to end their illusion of self-rule. Jesus walking on the water, standing above the storm, is not such good news to them. Throughout Israel's history, we see that these signs were signs of judgment. But this time Jesus has come to do something different. This time he came to bring peace in the light. Let's read how this scene unfolds differently this time. Verses 20 to 21. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus' response to their fear is the same response God gave to Moses when he was standing at the burning bush. What is happening here? I am unholy standing in the presence of this holy God. Or when Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock to avoid being incinerated by God's glory. Jesus tells the disciples the same thing. God told Moses, I am. It is I, literally says, I am. This is just one of a, a couple dozen times in John's gospel that Jesus represents himself, refers to himself as I am, repeatedly representing, emphasizing his divine nature. In the past, in the old covenant, a scene like this, this dark and stormy scene with I am coming in, meant, meant trouble for God's people. But now Jesus came to do something different. He came to rescue us from the night terror, not judge us for creating it. Jesus further tells them, do not be afraid. This was the comfort that God would give his people often in the Old Testament when he was telling them, yes, I'm coming in power, but I'm bringing my power to work on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Now, upon hearing this, the disciples welcome their mighty God near them. It says, then they were glad to take him into the boat. After he spoke the comfort, then they were glad. The glad, this word glad just simply means they wanted him in the boat. They were eager to bring him in the boat at this point. They didn't want to hide any longer from him like Adam and Eve did when they sinned and they hid among the trees or like Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock or as the sinners under judgment in the book of Revelation, they call for the mountains to fall upon them so they can hide from God. Instead now, 
the disciples realized this power is at work on our behalf. We need him in the boat with us. They realized that all of their trouble is just a bad dream if God is with them. Jesus had come to help them, and in the midst of their terror, they assumed he was a further agent of terror. They're having that night terror, and Jesus is trying to comfort them, and they just they can't tell reality. Matthew Henry comments on these verses. Our real distresses are much increased by our imaginary ones. They are creatures of our own fancy. Even the approaches of comfort and deliverance are so often misconstrued as to become the occasions of fear and perplexity. We're not often only worse frightened than hurt, but then most frightened when we are ready to be helped. So that's his kind of old English way of saying that we make so much of our problems in the world. Our own imaginations make them far worse than they really are. Because this is all just a shadow land. These are not the threats we believe them to be. And this dream world can hide the greater threat that really looms over us in our spiritual darkness. And then when God offers us rescue, in our sin, we only see him as further terror. We, don't, we push him away. We like our darkness. We don't want God around bossing us. We, don't, we think that following him will only cause more pain and more sadness. We treat him as a threat to our happiness instead of receiving him as the source of our comfort. But he has chosen to save us. So he presses in while we are raging against him. He comes close and he wakes us up so that we can see the threats were just an illusion. He gets into the boat and suddenly our perspective changes. Though Jesus treads above the darkness of this world, he has entered into the darkness to take it upon himself. He let the storms of God's judgment overwhelm him in his death to divert the judgment from us. He died on a cross, fully taking our humanity, our sin upon himself, all the way to death. And then he rose from the dead, defeating the night terrors, to lift us up with him out of the nightmare into a truer existence. And this life is all ours if we receive him into our lives. And then look what happens in verse 21 as soon as Jesus gets in the boat. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately, they were at safety. Suddenly, it was like they were never even in the storm. It's all done. We need to be careful here. This is not teaching some prosperity gospel where if you believe in Jesus, you'll get the girl you want, you'll be rich and healthy for the rest of your life. I don't even know why you die if you believe in the prosperity gospel because everything's great. No. Matthew Henry, again, he's so good with words. He beautifully explains this statement, encouraging us, whatever trials we face, if we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, have received him willingly, though the night be dark and the wind high, yet we may comfort ourselves with this, that we shall be at shore shortly and are nearer to it than we think we are. 
we are nearer to glory than we think we are. What was real in that terrifying moment on the sea? The storm, the darkness, the waves crashing over as they could feel the cold wind, the splashing on their faces. Was that real? Jesus is showing us that what we see with our eyes in this world is not the fullest picture of reality. Simply making this shadow world a little bit better is not what he came to do. In this sin-induced dream world, it's difficult to see which way is up. The only way to know what is real is to look to Jesus above the storm, to listen to his voice, his words of comfort, to welcome his presence into our lives even more. And with him near, you will be comforted that whatever storms you face in your life, if you have received Christ into your vessel, before you know it, you will be at heaven's shores. You're much closer to peace and safety than you realize. In Christ, you can see more clearly and rest more peacefully through the night, which is ending soon. The sunrise is just under the horizon. But if you are not in Christ today, let this story be a warning to you that the storms and waves crashing over you in this life are simply pointers, little samples of the judgment that's to come. Jesus still remains the God who treads above the darkness. And one day he was going to bring it all into judgment. This world is what C.S. Lewis likes to call a shadowland. Shrouded in darkness, making it difficult to tell what's real or imagined, up from down, right for wrong, good from evil, pleasurable from painful sometimes. The trials we face, no matter how real or imagined they are, they have eternal consequences. The choices we make in this shadow land affect our experience beyond them. Jesus has come to warn us of the destruction of this shadowed world and rescue those who want out. If you reject him, you fall further into the shadows, embracing your sin, clinging to illusions of self-control until you fall into eternal torment. But he invites you gladly today to receive him into the boat. Keep your gaze on him in the storm. Pull him close to you and you will endure every struggle in this world no matter what the world throws at you because you know that your God stands above it all and controls the chaos. Look to Jesus as the Lord of the storm and trust that he will awaken you from the terror. No matter what conflict you face, we must work to train ourselves to look to Jesus Fight to find ways to just get alone and pray and call out to him for rescue. Convince yourself to open up your Bible and read so you can hear his voice. Pull other Christians near and open up your heart to them. Confess your fears to them so they can comfort you with the loving embrace and the certain promises of King Jesus. These things will calm your heart and help you look at your trouble with new eyes, with confidence that he will soon bring you to safety. Remember as you go about your life in this world that it is merely like the shadowlands in Narnia. 
They have a sense of reality, yet they're so clouded by corruption and confusion. In the story of Narnia, the more the Narnians listen to the voice of Aslan, the more they pursue his kingdom, his country, the clearer their vision gets, the stronger they become to fight back against the evil and endure the battles until the day they arrive at new Narnia's shores. In the final scene of the last book, spoiler alert if you haven't read it, in the last battle, Lewis tells us of these heroes who are walking through a beautiful new land. They were in the middle of a battle and they had dived, dove, dove, divin. I'm a little confused right now. They, they dove into this stable that looked a little shady. It looked scary, but they escaped by diving into this stable. And we find out that this stable is full of even more despair for those who had rejected the true king. But it was also a place of forever increasing delight for those who received him. As they walk through this beautiful land inside the stable, they realize it looks a lot like old Narnia and old England, but it's brighter and the people are more animated. Their senses are more alive than ever before. And Lucy finally realizes what's happening. She says, this is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below, just as it was more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. And then Aslan a little later clarifies that the stable was the passage of death into eternal life. And he says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Brothers and sisters, these are the promises given to you in Christ. Remember every day of your life that you were made for a better world, not this shadow land. Don't let the comforts of this dream world lull you into a false security. And remember that the dangers of this world, when they threaten to overwhelm you, Christ stands above them all. He's in control of it all, yet he has entered the dark world to take it upon himself to waken us and bring us safely home. The dream is ending soon, and we will awaken to a new morning in a new creation that's more real and more beautiful than anything you can imagine. Amen. Let's pray. God, we long to be there. I know many in this room already are wrestling, are, are fighting, are battling so many of this world's demons. Frustrated, tired, they've been rowing for hours. And the threats keep coming, the waves keep blowing, the, the winds keep blowing, the waves keep crashing over the side of the boat and they wonder, will they make it to safety? God, help us look to Christ. Help us sing to Christ. Help us hear the words of Christ and pray to our risen King and trust that soon we will be at heaven's shores. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself through your word today. May we endure faithfully for the glory of his name this week. Amen.